You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Okay, good morning. I got to make a confession. I don't, uh, I don't do very well in the elements. So you have to bear with me today. And in case the sun comes back out so I can still see your beautiful faces, I'm going to be here with a little bit of blocking. Um, Okay. So today, we're in Matthew 25. Jackie just read that passage for us. Uh, And we're talking about talents and servants. And it reminds me of the story from when I was young. Um, We had a garage sale. And I sold... Um, I remember selling my beloved Mr. Potato Head, um, and I got, see now I'm doing the math in my head and these numbers feel really off. I thought a very large sum of money for it. Uh, Maybe I sold a few toys, but I remember that I got paid in pennies. Um, For whatever reason, the the woman who was a friend of my mom's who came and bought the toys from me um, paid me in pennies. And so I remember having somewhere between 5 and $10 in pennies. And if you're a kid, this is a large sum of money. Not just because it's $10, but because literally it is a lot of pennies to hold in your hand. And I kept them in a baggie, keep them safe, uh, very secure plastic baggie. Uh, and I remember being obsessed with like the idea of treasure and finding buried treasure. And so I used to make like pretend, treasure maps, go about our yard. Uh, Eventually I learned that you can't just determine where treasure is to be found. There has to be treasure there ahead of time. And so then I go and I think, okay, well, I've got treasure, uh, my $10 and pennies, and I'm going to go bury it so that later I can come back to and find it, and it'll just be a blast. Uh, And so I go into the flower bed right outside our house and start digging around in the flower bed which I'm sure my parents loved. And I buried the pennies. But at this point um, is when I learned a very valuable lesson. It's that you have to keep the sum of money together uh, or else it's much less valuable. And so what I did was I thought just a baggie full of pennies would be lame to find later. And so I scattered the pennies in the flower bed. Um, And so (laughs) there's just like, uh, let me do the math, like a thousand stray pennies in this garden bed just scattered in there for anybody to see. It was not deep enough to really bury. And, and so then, you know, the next day I go out and I just think, well, this is actually a lot of work now to bury this up or to dig this up, and it's not fun anymore. And so we moved away from that house, and as far as I know, there's still somewhere around a thousand pennies in a garden bed down in southwest Missouri somewhere to this day. And what I learned that day was a valuable lesson, um, first of all, about keep your money together when you bury it. Um, But also, you know, as we come to a passage like this and we're we're talking about people burying money, um, I've learned since then that that's not wise financial advice to bury your money in a garden bed outside your house. But we learn these things, right? You learn these things over time. And uh, what we're going to see today in this parable is that this guy who buried the money, similar to seven-year-old Houston, was not very wise with it. It was not a wise decision, and it didn't turn out well for him. So we're going to jump into that in a minute, but, but first I just always want to remind us, you know, where have we been? 
where are we going kind of thing. We've been in the book of Matthew for um, somewhere around 2 to 24 years now. And uh, we've been trekking through, and it's been a wonderful time. And we've just been building towards what we know is the end of Matthew, right? And if you, if you look at your Bible, there's only, in my Bible, three more pages of Matthew left. So we're nearing the end. And tensions are rising, and it's getting intense. And as we near the end, we have to remember what's coming. We know that uh, in a few chapters, Jesus is going to be crucified. And he's going to come raise again. And we have to remember where we've been coming from. And especially in these last few chapters, we've been talking about Jesus' return and second coming. So Matthew 24, we talked about uh, uh, Jesus coming again and, and how to be ready. And then last week, Zach talked about the parable of the ten bridesmaids. We were reminded about needing to be ready for when Jesus returns, even if he's delayed. And so today we're talking again about this idea of readiness and what it looks like. But instead of this idea of just being ready, believing that he will come, today we're going to talk about what to do in the meantime and how what we do in the meantime is a part of being ready. And today we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see that Jesus has entrusted his servants with gifts, each of us according to our ability. Second, we're going to see that he will return, and he's going to come collect on those gifts. And he's going to, we're going to see that the way we've used those gifts in the meantime matters. And third, we're going to see that Jesus' metrics for success are wildly different than ours. And along the way, we're going to talk about uh, what this means for us, how we apply this to our lives, and some practical ways we can live this out. So let's pray real quick. Father, I just pray that as we come to uh, your word, as we talk about stewardship and what that means, I uh, pray that we would be faithful stewards of your words, of your word. And I pray that in this, Lord, that the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first thing we do, a little housekeeping. We're going to set the scene. So we've got this man, and he is clearly very rich. Maybe he's like a ruler, maybe someone significant, a politician, something like that. We don't know, but it's clear that he is flush with cash. This guy has got the kind of money that his money makes money, money. Do you know what I'm saying? This guy is rich. And so he's going on a trip, um, which is so on brand for rich people, right? He's probably going to Europe to find himself, sail the Thames. I don't know what you do when you're rich. Either way, he's going on a journey. He calls his servants to him, his personal servants, and he distributes talents to them. And so in your Bibles, uh, most of us are going to have some kind of a footnote about what a talent is. And some will say different amounts, but each talent is like a sum of money. It's worth somewhere around 20 years' pay. So maybe it's a little less, maybe it's a little more, but the, the point is really clear. This guy is handing out a lot of money. And so we're just going to do some very conservative estimates. This guy is handing out to the first person somewhere around $3 million, to the second person somewhere around $1 million, and to the third person somewhere around $500,000, give or take. Could be more, 
could be a little less. And based on the context of the parable, it seems clear that the man expects that these servants are going to do something with his money, that they're going to take his money and make a profit from him. And so this is like the first century equivalent of like a very wealthy man going to his broker or his accountant, cutting a big check and saying, make me a lot of money, I'm going to do business in Cancun. And so now, now that we have that context in mind, we know that this parable he's talking about, a man giving his servants money to invest. Uh, let's, let's talk about what the parable means. And so first, let's remember, like I said earlier, we've got to remember the context. We've been talking about Jesus' second coming. We've been talking about when Jesus returns. And so it makes a lot of sense as we come to this parable about a master who is leaving and coming back. It makes a lot of sense to slot Jesus in to the position of master. And it's important that we see that this master is both leaving and expected to return, just like Jesus. And so the question is, who are the other characters in the parable? And I think it's best if we understand them as representing us, like people who follow Jesus, who are in this in-between time between the master leaving uh, at Jesus' ascension and returning uh, at his second coming. And so this is really in line with language in the Bible, talking about uh, his, uh, Jesus' followers or, or people who believe and trust and follow God as servants, servants of Christ, servants of the Lord. And so the, the language really slots in nicely for us to be the servants, or any follower of Jesus to be the servants here in this passage. And so if then we should, in a sense, read this parable as us being the servants, or applying to us in the way that applies to the servants. And we have to see some important things. There's a really important thing that we need to catch here right at the beginning, is that the master distributed talents based on their individual abilities. And so I get the sense that this guy was not only rich enough to have eight talents. I don't get the sense that this guy emptied his savings account to hand it over to his servants. I get the sense that this man is so wealthy that eight talents is not going to break him. And he gives it to his servants, not because eight was all he had, but because eight was how many they could handle. He knew his people, and he knew his servants so well that he knew what they would handle. And so similarly, Jesus is saying here is that the Lord distributes gifts to his people based on some metric of ability. And so now, does this mean that the Lord gives us only what we can handle, like what we have ability for? Or, or is it a step back and does it mean that the Lord gives us the ability to handle things in the first place? And I think that's a bigger question this passage intends to answer. I think the important thing here is not to say to what degree do these two things connect, but to say that they do connect. The idea is that we need to see that it matches, the Lord, or the master in this story, did not give based on favoritism. He, he didn't give based on unequal blessing or, or something like that. The idea is that the, the master here knows his people well and knows that they can handle. And he gives to them according to that deep knowledge that he has of them. And really this, like already off the bat, should be a huge comfort to us. We should see in this picture 
not that the servants had to prove themselves to, to gain the affection of the master or something like that before the story starts. What we should see is that the Lord moved first to give to them based on what they could handle. And it's a great reminder as we dive deeper into this passage and uh, deeper into the Bible as a whole that, that here in this story that the Lord is like the first mover towards us, right? He knows us. He knows what we're capable of. And he moves towards us knowing that. And the Lord entrusts his servants with gifts based on their abilities. And I think that's good news for us this morning. So let's keep this in mind uh, as we keep, keep on going. So like every good investor, he's come back to collect. Verses 16 through 19 say this. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And so you see that each of the servants took their money and did something different. Two of the, or the two with the five and the two, both put the money to work and they got themselves some profit. They doubled their money. And the third one, who's given the talent, the one talent buries it. Uh, But before we go too far into how each of them was received by the master, what I want to talk about is how um, uh, we need to consider something else. Sorry. It's important for us to remember that in this story, uh, the master did return and come collect. Uh, It would be easy for us to think that the servants maybe weren't sure if the master was coming back, when he was coming back. You remember the last parable, there was kind of a question about whether the bridegroom was coming. And once he was so delayed, it's like, is he coming at all? And, and the problem with the last parable, the, the parable of the ten virgins, was that they were not prepared for him to come later than they expected, right? And in this parable, that is not the consideration at all. You know, they, they could have, if they thought that he wasn't coming back, this parable could have been about them pocketing the money, or about making the profit and skimming a little off the top. There's so, like, so many ways that this parable could have been a little different. Uh, but it's important to see that here in this parable, uh, none of the three considered that the master wouldn't come back. And that's because they knew the master was returning. They trusted that when he said he would go out, he would come back. And so we should say, take stock here as Jesus' followers some 2,000 years after this parable as told, that we're in verses 16 and 17, right? We're in this little section in the middle of this parable. And so Jesus has ascended, uh, but he's promised that he's returned. And we can't help but, but, there's a tongue twister, we can't help but be hit over the head with this image that Jesus is returning in this promise. And so we can learn something about the immediacy of the servants in this passage, they knew not only that he was coming back, they knew he was going to come back soon in some sense. And the time was short, and they had to make the most of what they had in the meantime. 
And they knew that the master who had distributed would come later to collect. We should remember that like these servants, we will make an account at the end based on how we handled what we were given and how we spent our time and money. And, and even this third guy who only got one talent, we say only one, he was given somewhere around $500,000. That's a lot of money. That's life-changing money to be given all at once, right? So even the guy who got the least still got so much. And it's important for us as believers to consider how easy is it to say, well, I've only been given this. That is still so much. And you know, it's easy at a place like this to start to maybe get a little nervous. If you're like me, you start to think back to even the last week. And the prospects don't look so good with how I've handled my talent. I can think of so many times, even the last few days, where I did not spend my time wisely. Maybe didn't spend my money wisely. Yeah, even preparing for this sermon, like I could have spent more time on it. Could have researched more, wrote more, prayed more. It's passages like this that, that remind me of so many ways that I have fallen short. So many ways that I have been like that third guy who just buries the talent and doesn't put it to work. And Jesus says that it's important how we use our time and resources and how we use our gifts. And I, I realize that I've not done that well. But the good news is that we have a good and gracious master. Jesus is so good to us despite our shortcomings. And he loves us so well despite our deficiencies. And, and the way that we see that most clearly is in the rest of the parable. But, but I just want to think back for a second. If, if the man distributes based on their abilities, he understands who that third servant is. He knows what this guy's about. How easily could, Jesus have, could the master have said, this third guy, he's not going to bring me any profit. Why bother? But he doesn't. He still moves towards him and trusts him in love. And I think that it's a great reminder for us today that the Lord still moves to us in grace and love, knowing our shortcomings and deficiencies, knowing the ways that we will fall short. And he still loves and trusts us. Let's jump back in. Verse 20 through 30. I'm just going to read the last of it. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, 
and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast a worthless servant into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, at first blush, this sounds harsh. This sounds a lot less gracious than what I was just getting out a minute ago, doesn't it? The master, he punishes the third servant, and he says some really hard things. He says some lines that can be taken in in ways that are are very difficult, (laughs) to say the least. But when we break it down and really dive into what's happening here, I think that what we see is that we still see a kind and compassionate master. A firm one, yes. A one who expects much from his servants, yes. But an unfair or cruel master, no. I don't think so at all. And so first let's talk about the first two servants. They each show the master they invested the money he gave them, and they each doubled their money. And the master is pleased with this, and he rewards both. And But what's interesting here, and we can kind of gloss over this, is that, first of all, when we say they both doubled their money, we're kind of lumping them together, right? We're kind of assuming that they both produced the same result. But in reality, the first one made five talents more, and the second one made two talents more. Now, why am I making this distinction? I'm, I'm saying this because we have to remember that the first guy made another $5 million, $3 million, however much, and the second guy made another $1 million. And these are very different amounts of money. But when we read it, we see that they both doubled it, and so we lump them together. And this is, it's kind of intuitive for us to say that, well, they were each given different amounts, and so the amount that they could make was different, Right? But this is not necessarily how the master had to respond to these first two servants. He could have said, the first guy comes up to him, brings him five talents, says, well done, great return on investment, lots of profit here. And the second guy comes up and brings him two more talents, and he says, no, this other guy, he brought me five. He did 2.5 times better than you did. But that's not what he does. The master doesn't say, I expected more because he brought me this much. No, what he says is, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been trusted with little, and you've been faithful with little, and I'll put you over much. And so the master is not expecting flat results. He doesn't expect each person to produce the same results as another. Instead, he knows and understands that each was given a different amount and has different capacity and capabilities, and as we've seen here, different giftings, and that these factors mean that we'll achieve different results. So when we look at other believers, we have to keep this in mind as we translate this to our life today. When we look at other believers and we see them using their gifts, we shouldn't compare ourselves to them apples to apples. It doesn't do me any good to look at uh, the musicians on stage here today while they're leading worship and to say, Man, I just don't cut it because I can't sing. It doesn't help at all for me to consider how I'm not using abilities that I don't have. And, and ultimately, I'm not going to be held accountable for how badly I sing, I hope. 
going to be held accountable for how well I've used the gifts that I have been given and how I've used what I have, not how I compare to others and how they've used their gifts. And so when we go about our day, especially we come together for church on Sundays or city groups throughout the weeks or just hanging out with other believers, we have to be so careful not to compare ourselves to others and say, if only I could do this, if only I could do that. Or even worse, we could say things like, look what this person has done with their gifts. Why couldn't I have done that? Why am I not there? And for me, it's, it's really difficult not to compare myself to others. Even if we don't consider the gifts that I don't have, like singing, I really naturally compare myself to others. And I always think about, I have this friend that uh, I went to college with, and he's the same age as I am, but he took a gap year between high school and college. And he, uh, so he got there a year after I did. And he and I are kind of on a similar track, uh, school, pastoral ministry, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, But where my path took some different routes, um, he kept going. And so now he's working on his PhD. I mean, he's a brilliant guy. It really doesn't help for me to compare myself to him. But uh, now he's at the point where he's working on his PhD, and I'm taking classes, and he could be my professor. So same age as me, started a school a year after me, and he's my professor, or could have been my professor. And so it's really, it's really easy for me to look at him and say, man, this is apples to apples, and I'm not cutting it. I'm not stacking up here. And, and Kinsey will tell you, there's plenty of times when we're sitting at home, and I'm thinking, man, I just, I don't cut it. I've not done well with what I've been given. Look at, look at him. He's so much farther than me. Why haven't I done this? Why haven't, why haven't? And, and Kinsey, in her wisdom, reminds me that everybody has different giftings, different paths that the Lord has called us to, and that there's no point in comparing ourselves and our achievements to each other because faithfulness for each of us is going to look a little different. Even if we're on similar paths, I'm going to say this again, faithfulness for each of us is going to look different. And ultimately, I think that's a big part of this passage, of the message of this parable. Jesus wants us to see that on some level, faithfulness looks different for each of us. Stewarding the different gifts that we've been given and making the most of what we have for his glory will look a little different for each of us. And on the same note, we can see that there are still similar veins of faithfulness. The first two servants were praised, not because of the amount of money they brought in, but because they invested their money and set out to bring their master a profit. And again, we see that the master appreciated not the amount that they returned, but their faithfulness with the little. And so we see it here in verses 21 and 23. It says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Here we see a glimpse of what Jesus considers to be important. It's not your profitability, but it's your faithfulness. In this parable, the master is far less concerned 
with the prophet numbers that the servants bring in, but their faithfulness to him. He could trust them with this amount of money. He could trust them to serve him in faithfulness and love. And so he puts them in charge of more. And this, this is good news for us today too. It's good news that for all we're given, for all the blessings we have now, it won't compare to what we have from Jesus in the future. This, this cool $5 million that he gave this first guy and, and the doubled money of $10 million is pennies compared to what they have coming for him. How much more joy do we have in store for us then when Jesus returns? For all the ways that we experience the Lord's blessing on earth, beautiful sunlight, nice Sunday mornings, a cool breeze, all of these things are so good. They're such good blessings. Maybe it's financial stability. Maybe it's relational health. Maybe it's living in a town where your kids can get a good education. All these things, they're so good. They're good blessings that the Lord gives us. And, and man, it's such good news that this doesn't compare to the blessings that we're going to receive when Jesus comes back. And, and eventually we know that for all the good that does happen today, there's so much more coming when Jesus comes to rule and be king among us. And that is true riches. Amen. But unfortunately, this parable teaches us that not all will taste that. And this third servant in particular has had a different interaction with the master. He was given the one talent. And remember, that's still a lot of money. $500,000, give or take. And so even though in comparison to the other two, it wasn't much, it was still a huge amount of money. And what does he do with this money? He buries it in the backyard and hides it Pablo Escobar style. And so not only that, it says that he hides it. And this is, this is an important word. He doesn't just bury it for safekeeping. He doesn't just put it in his piggy bank. He doesn't just stash it away somewhere. He hid it. And I think that what this shows us is that there's paranoid in this. Hiding this money is not about safekeeping. It's about fear. He's anxious about this. And why? Well, we see in the next verse, it's because he has a bad view of his master. Verse 25, or 24, he says, uh, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. The servant was afraid of the master. He said that he knew the master was a hard man. He reaps where he didn't sow, gathers where he didn't plant seed. That's shorthand for saying that he's an unethical businessman. This servant thought his master was a bad man. He thought he was a harsh man. And that beyond that, he, he did shady dealings. This servant is suggesting that this master was wealthy from bad gains. And so in short, this servant hid this money because he was afraid of his master. He had a bad view of him. He says, I I hid this money because I knew you were a bad man. And then if it didn't turn out well for me, I was done. And so the master 
He plays along. He says, oh, you knew me to be a bad man, did you? You knew me to be harsh. Then why didn't you put it in the bank and I could have at least gotten interest on it? And so in other words, the master is criticizing the man because not only did he just say some harsh and, and untrusting things about him, he didn't even act consistently with his fear. If the master really was so cruel that not bringing a good return on investment was enough to hurt his servant or worse, then why wouldn't you have at least gotten interest from the bankers? So, but Houston, I hear you saying, didn't the master still punish him for not being profitable? And I think this is where the parable gets interesting. See, the master punishes the servant, and, and I don't think it's because he didn't make a profit, but because he was not a faithful steward of what was given to him. And even more than that, he was sent away because he had a bad view of the master and he had a bad heart about him. And I think this is what Jesus is really getting at. When we get to verse 29, there's this weird line that says, For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what we has we taken away. And so he's not talking about money here. Jesus is not making some play on rich get richer, poor get poorer kind of thing. He's talking about something else. And I think that we should remember that that we've seen this exact line earlier in the book of Matthew. Matthew is calling back to something uh, earlier in the book. In verse 13, or sorry, chapter 13, verse 12. This is in the section where Jesus was talking about the purpose of parables. He says, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It's like the exact same language, right? In the context of Matthew 13, Jesus is not talking about possessions. He's talking about something different. If we go back and remember what that section was about, he was talking about understanding. And he was talking about uh, heart posture. And so, Jesus is saying that this servant had both a, a scarcity and an abundance. He had a scarcity of trust and understanding. And he had abundance of fear and hardness of heart. And these poured out in such a way that he was a poor steward. For when his master returned, there was consequences for that. So as we come to this passage, it could be really easy for us to start to worry. Am I the third servant in this story? Am I the one who is not using the the gifts that the Lord has entrusted to me? Will I be received as a faithful servant or as a wicked and lazy servant? And these these are hard questions to ask, but they're surely very good questions. And the most important thing we can see here is that, again, Jesus' metric for faithfulness is very different from ours. What Jesus is calling us to here is not profitability, but trust. He's not calling us to produce grand results that will wow people, but to trust and lean on him and his giftings, all for the purpose of his glory. And this is the most important thing that we can see today, that the Lord is our master, and that we'll make account for how we've used our time and our giftings 
but that again, that Jesus measures success based on our heart and our trust, not our results. So as we come to a time of application, I want us to keep this goal in mind. We have to remember that what is being measured here is not our results, but our faithfulness. And so for those of us who are new to this whole story, new to the Gospels, new to Jesus, I want to encourage you that despite what the world suggests, we have been created and we are accountable to that creator. We've been created by the God of the Bible, and we were designed for a purpose. And at some point or another, we've all thrown this away. We've all walked away from this. And then the good news is that through Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, we can be brought back, and we can have right relationship with him. And we can enjoy this status with the Lord. And if this is you, I want to encourage you this morning, just consider this. Consider this Jesus, who is both the master who is gone and will come back, and the good master who knows and loves his people. I want to encourage you to to pray to him, ask for his forgiveness and mercy. And the good news, friends, is that he is so generous, he loves to give these out. And he's eager to share these with you. And for those of us who have been following Jesus for a while, we always have to make sure that we're applying the truths of this passage in the right ways. And first of all, don't forget Jesus' metrics for success. He's not looking for profit, for results. He's not looking that you've won this many people or done this many things. He's looking for faithfulness and trust. So my first challenge for all of us today is this. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of what the metrics for success are. Each of us is in a different position with different gifts. We can spend all the time in the world comparing ourselves to each other and how we're doing, or worse, how badly they're doing. But we need to come back to this point. Jesus is calling you to faithfulness to him and to manage well what he has given you. This is a personal relationship. This is a personal accountability, individual in this case. And so let's, take, let's spend time over the coming week taking stock of the things that he's given us. For some of us, our riches are in relationships. Are we managing these well? Are we loving and caring for those around us? For some of us, our riches are in giftings and abilities. Are you serving well? If you've been given a gift, especially one that can serve the body, do it. Use it. If you're good at singing, you should reach out and, and try to see if you can serve with music. If you're good with kids, reach out. Serve in next gen. There's always space to serve and use the gifts that you've been given. And so lastly, for some of us, this riches is actual financial resources. And so don't think that just because Jesus used talents in the story and that talents kind of represent giftings in general, that he's not talking about money. He's not just talking about money, but he is talking about money. Jesus talks a lot about money in the Gospels. And this is not a coincidence. How you spend your money and how you serve those around you with it 
and how you steward what you've been given are very important things. Very important to Jesus. And I'm not standing here telling you that that looks like giving all your money away and turning to poverty. I don't know what it looks like for you. But Jesus does. And we've got to remember that the thing that Jesus is tracking here, the thing that he's um, desiring for us, is faithfulness with it. And so if this is you, I want to encourage you, reach out to elders, city group leaders, somebody trusted and wise, and talk through what it looks like to be wise with your finances. Talk through what it looks like to be faithful what you've been given, what you've been given with this. Because with money, and like with all of our gifts, friends, we will have to make an account one day. And we can trust that he is good and faithful. And ultimately, that trusting of his goodness and faithfulness should lead us to more goodness and faithfulness on our parts. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you again for beautiful weather, for a chance to come together and worship. Lord, when we come to a passage like this, I just see so clearly that you have been so gracious to us and blessed us, even with things like sunshine and cool breeze and rain, and the bigger things like the chance to meet together, the chance to have fellow believers around us, the chance to have uh, a roof over our head, meals to eat, so many things that you've blessed us with in varying degrees. And Lord, I just pray that as we walk away from here, that you would grow faithfulness and trust in you. That we wouldn't be so caught up measuring success in terms of results or profits, but that we would measure success based on faithfulness to you and trust in you, Lord. And we know that we can't do these things on our own. We know that for all of our strength, we're going to fall short. And so we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your gifts of life through your life, death, and resurrection. And I just pray that you continue to transform us into a people that is faithful and generous with what you've given us. We praise in Jesus' name.